turn with me to Psalm 27, if you would. Our sermon series that we're doing over the course of the summer months is looking at prayer through the Psalms, how the Psalms teach us how to pray. And so last week we looked at worship, um, the adoration of God as a corporate people. This week it's a, another look at worship, but it's the contemplation of God in his majesty and his beauty. Let me invite you to stand as we hear Psalm 27 read. And would it be that God would add his rich blessing to this, the reading of his holy word? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. The war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord that, uh, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the days of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. And let your heart take courage. Set our hearts. Lift our eyes so that we may see. Because as we've already heard this morning, and as nobody smiles at us the way you smile at us, with glad hearts. I know this because my children have already told me they're bored. <laughs> as much as I bemoan the constant running here, there, and everywhere that is during the school year, now I kind of miss it. The extracurricular activities are fun. When I was growing up, I needed an extracurricular activity. 
And so my parents found a, uh, an establishment that would teach uh, young persons such as me Taekwondo. Now, a variety of things go through my mind and probably yours as well. Um, let me just go ahead and tell you I am not a black belt. Um, I did learn a few things about myself in the midst of the process. Um, I learned that um, though I needed to learn self-defense because, let's face it, I was, I was the bullied kid. There was a lot of bullying going on and there was a lot of self going on. Um, this, uh, this wasn't the way to learn it, at least for me. Um, the frustrations came when it was time to test for a belt and no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't break the board so I quit. No, that's partly true. I quit Taekwondo. I didn't quit learning self-defense. See, instead of the ancient art of Taekwondo, I picked up uh, an even older art form of self-defense. The art form of if only. Perhaps you've studied if only two. Some of us have become quite advanced in the art of if only. My if onlys may look different than yours. The, the reason that I learned self-defense, the root of why I learned self-defense may be different than yours. Um, I grant you that. Not everybody's story is mine, and I'm glad for that, honestly. But uh, I, I would commend to you that all of us have learned at some level or at some degree the art of if only. Because all of us, as I said last week, all of us are worshipers. All of us set our, uh, set our eyes and set our affections on something to, uh, that would say, if only I had that, I'll be safe. I'll be content. See, I was ascribing my need to something. If only I could be a CEO of a successful corporation, then my problems would be solved. If only I could get a girl to go on a date with me, they wouldn't make fun of me and tell me that I was gay. But I know what the psalm tells us. And the psalm tells us something really. David's enemies are encamped around him and preparing to take him. Down in verse 10, his father and his mother have forsaken him. This psalm is not the serene musings of a man who had everything and just wanted to wake up in the morning and feel better because life was already really good for him. This psalm instead is a declaration to the heart of a man who is posed, uh, poised to lose everything that there is and that there is only one thing that truly matters, and that's the focus of, of the psalm. 
The discussion of what your if-onlys are is probably more than we have time to get into here and now. But I know you've got them. Because as I said last week, it's not that we are people who forget to worship. We're forgetful worshipers. We, just, we, we ascribe ultimate worth and ultimate value and ultimate satisfaction to whatever our if only is. But they're the wrong if onlys. The things that we need to feel safe, the things that we need uh, to feel like we have people that love us, the things that we need to not feel like an abject failure, these things we tell ourselves, if only I had these things, I would feel complete and safe. But then it turns over, right? And then it becomes, but then if I lose these things, I feel undone and completely exposed and unsafe. How does this tie into worship? Well, it's what I said, isn't it? It's the practice of prayer. It's the daily engaging in acts that tell us true things to push back against all the false things that would come in and vie for our attention and our affection. It wasn't that it was not a daily struggle for David. It's that we can learn from David's prayer what it is. Safety is a key word. So the first thing I want you to see this morning is that this psalm invites us to contemplate the protection of God. Look at what he says. The words fear or afraid get used three times in the opening three verses. There are enemies around him, adversaries encamping, false witnesses. And yet, David talks about his confidence. Look at it right there in verse 3. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. We live in a day and age where um, everyone around us is seeking to sell us all the reasons why we should be anything but confident, don't we? This is the world around us, isn't it? Everything around us is always why we should not be confident. So how is, how is David confident, right? There is an army in camp. There are enemies surrounding. He is ready to get taken. How is David confident? He is confident in God's strength. He is confident in God's protection. He is confident in God's faithfulness. Look at how he describes it. He describes it as the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? He's not shying away from the fact that he is afraid. He is rather telling himself true things and then asking himself, what then is the root of your fear? If this is true, what then is the root of your fear? What are you afraid of actually losing if this is true? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Therefore, of whom shall I be afraid? Though an army shall encamp and war rise up, David is confident. 
Now, this psalm gives us an interesting theological insight that will become more clear in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, God was never described as light. God was described as the creator of light. But for God to be described as light, this is the only time in the, in the Old Testament that that actually happens. It's right here in Psalm 27. We see that David is looking to God to be his light and his salvation. There is a sense in which salvation does convey a level of protection, but we have to understand that David is not presuming that because God is his salvation, he will be spared of all of the frightful things that this world has or can do to people. But it does tap into what we all feel, which is an innate desire to be protected. It's the reason that I was signed up for Taekwondo, so that I could protect myself. The world is happy to sell us any product we would be willing to spend money on in order to feel protected, whether it be diet supplements, insurance policies, weapons or home security systems, self-defense classes and self-help books, positive thinking and pills in order to feel protected against what the world can throw at us. Then are automatically escaping the world. About a month and a half ago, I started a new um, protocol with my doctor to try and deal with my um, heightened level of anxiety that I feel. My anxiety is really only bad on days that end in Y. So I did get some relief in there, um, except on every day of the week. Um, and it's been better. I heard from my parents that my grandmother in the later stages of her life um, started an antidepressant and was a different person. Other members of my family grappling with and just moved some genetics out of the way. Whatever it is, we're looking to things, tempted to look to things, to be our protection. The sad part is the church can also do a version of this too. The church can sell a version of this. We get the versions that go like this. If I follow Jesus, God is obligated to protect me. Bad things won't happen to me. As the elders were talking with Nate and Sam this morning, and we were talking to them about what it means to follow Jesus, we asked them the question because that's what we do. We ask questions. We said, what if, it, what if this day, what if this public declaration of faith in Jesus means that your life actually gets worse now instead of better? What if because you said you're a follower of Christ, things get harder, not easier? Because I thought this was supposed to be the escape from all of the hard things, and that's the thing. David goes and challenges us there as well. The Bible won't let us get away with that level of self-deception. The message that David has for us here is that the world is dark and ugly and painful, and in fact, you may lose everything. To be confident in God's protection is not to say that we are immune from forces outside or inside of us that cause us incredible pain or loss. What David is doing is instead ascribing value. He is ascribing worth. 
the thing of ultimate worth that is God himself is mine. And if I am God's and he is mine and he has promised that he will not let me go, that w- if that's true, then whatever the world can have or throw at me, it cannot ultimately defeat me. We're not guaranteed to not be robbed at gunpoint or struggle with depression or suffer tremendous loss or battle illness or cancer or see our our entire family taken from us. There are no presumptions to make in this world and there are no promises that we can count on save one. That though there are these things that are all around us, that could freely cause us to fear or faint, we can still have confidence and stare that fear in the face. How do we get there? It's the second thing that we see in this psalm. Not only does David call us to contemplate God's protection over us, but but David calls us to contemplate God's presence. Look at what he says in verse 4. One thing. One thing have I asked of the Lord that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. If you were honestly asking yourself that one question, if if there was a genie that showed up and said, I'll grant you one wish, Anything you want, what would you want it to be? No, you can't wish for more wishes. It's part of the contract. They recently updated their privacy policy. It's not a thing. If you could ask for one thing, what would it be? Here, David is saying, uh, I've not been uh, granted uh, a, a genie or, uh, or a wizard to grant me things. I'm, I'm making my, my request of the God of the universe, the one who has said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And what does he ask for? What does he seek after? That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. He's not saying one thing that I've asked for that I would know why God allows bad things to happen to good people. And he's not even asking that he or those he loves would be spared from all that this life might throw at them. No, what David is saying is that his one wish, his one desire is to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to be in the presence of the Lord. Right Last week in Psalm 95, we considered the the corporate adoration of God. Come, let us worship. Let us bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker. We're forgetful worshipers. And so we need to corporately come together and be reminded together what it means to worship God. We come together corporately week in and week out to hear the mighty acts of God, his mighty acts of creation and redemption, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, who was given for us as a substitute and a sacrifice for us who deserved none of God's good pleasure and none of God's grace. We hear about Jesus together so that we may taste and see 
that the Lord is good, that we may, we may be reminded that we have nothing. We have no hope and no help and no haven apart from him. Psalm 27 Psalm 27 is like the other side of that same coin. It's the, it's the other part of the equation. Whereas we corporately adore God together, we see here the need to privately set our attention and our affection on God and God alone for all of his beauty and all of his majesty. We need both, friends. We need to be together as the church to hear the gospel and to affirm it and to hear it declared over and over again corporately. And we also need it privately. And if you you can say you can live life with one and without the other, you're wrong. The Bible won't let us go there. We need one another and we need uh, privately in those, in those still and dark moments of our hearts, whatever those may be, whether in personal devotion, whether in moments of crisis, whether in the, uh, the, the, the car ride or the, the, the dark times at three o'clock in the morning when you're the only one awake, but you can't turn your brain back off. Say one thing I have asked and that which I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord that I may set my gaze and my affection upon him. Beloved, worship is fueled by desire. Worship is fueled by desire. When I say that we're not, uh, we're not, we don't forget to worship, we're forgetful worshipers, worship is fueled by desire. We worship that which we desire. Your if-onlys are all fueled by desire of something whether it's the safety of, the, of your kids or the health of your spouse or your own aspirations or your own deepest fears, everything about our if-onlys are fueled by desire. And so worship, rightly ordered worship, are desires that have been reshaped and reordered by the gospel. It's not a matter of, are you, of if you are worshiping, it's a matter of what are you worshiping. Either things that through disordered desire are taking you away from God or things through graciously gospel reordered desire are moving you back towards his face. The Bible's full of descriptors about God's presence. Listen to it. In Psalm 16, verse 11, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Or in Psalm 50, verse 2, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. In Psalm 84, the psalmist declares that a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. But, but how does making much of God end up satisfying us? How does making much of God end up satisfying us? The wonder of God's beauty is more deeply satisfying than anything else that we could ever have or could ever experience. It is transfixing. It is satisfying. There is no other beauty that will ultimately leave you forever and always in awe. Eventually, like, your, like my kids on summer break, you would say, I'm bored. Even with all the success and all the riches and all the delights of this world, of which they are many, There is only one that will forever and always keep your gaze enraptured and your attention transfixed. 
It is God's grace that he calls us to consider him and gaze upon the wonder of his beauty because there is no other that will satisfy. We were made to be transfixed by God's beauty. We have in our sinfulness distorted other beauties and made finite things ultimate things. But the hope of the gospel is that Jesus has come and through him, through his sacrifice, through his gracious invitation to us to come and give up everything and follow him. One day we will be delivered into the hands of God so that we might be uh, that we might experience fullness of joy forevermore, the delight of his beauty. See, David just doesn't want to know that God is beautiful. He wants to experience that God is beautiful. So many of us, you've heard the illustration, of course. There's one thing to know that the Grand Canyon is amazing. There's another entirely to stand before it and see the paintings of Da Vinci. Or Rouault. So not only does the psalm call us to contemplate, to consider the protection of God and the presence of God, but also the deliverance of God. David says in verses 5 and following, he will hide me in the shelter, in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now that my head has been lifted above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with a shout of joy, I will sing and make melody to my heart. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. And David says, in response, my heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your ways, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. David is not muting or deceiving himself to think that if I just get in a trance-like state, all will be well. That's not what I mean by contemplation, and that's not what David means by contemplation either. This is not better living through positive thinking. The psalm is brutally honest with us. David is not masking or medicating or minimizing the pain of the world around him. David's confidence was ultimately in the deliverance of God. Look at what he says in verse 13. He says, I believe, this is a creedal statement, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. He says that he's going to look on the goodness of the Lord. He, he may have, in fact, been expecting that God would deliver him in his lifetime, but he may also have been uh, operating under the knowledge that even death itself was not the final word. Look at Job. We often uh, bring Job up as, a, as, a, um, as an evidence of those that have persevered under great hardship. Look at what Job's ultimate hope was in Job 19. He says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. 
whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. What is, what is David looking for? What was Job looking for? It was this. It was the confidence that I shall one day see God. What sustained Job? That God would deliver. What sustained David? That God would deliver. And then, and then we see Jesus. We see Jesus, the one whose enemies were encamped all around him. The one who in the garden cried out, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. And if it be your will, O Father, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, yours be done. The one whose own family betrayed him. The one who lost it all and was emptied of it all. What sustained Jesus was to look to his father and say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. There was no other place of solace or comfort for Christ and Jesus. Jesus was raised and Jesus was victorious and death is no more. And there is nothing that life or death or the devil himself can do to you or I that has not been fully and finally defeated in the resurrection of Jesus. David's final exhortation in verse 14, wait for the Lord. Why would he say that? And then, and maybe, just maybe, God really wants me to have this if only for the Lord. Be strong. And let your heart take courage. The Lord has not forgotten us, nor does he forsake us. Dwell upon the beauty of that, that the God of the universe knows you by name and will never abandon So my self-defense that I've learned over the years still hasn't done me much good. Still these many years later, I can't break And my self-preservation tactics that I have learned in their stead of pride and anger and sarcasm and deflection have not helped me either. Though they've wounded people, don't worry. Now what I've, what I've found is, is that really when I finally rest in my own defenselessness and, and instead remember that there is one who has taken the hits for me and pledged himself to me and that there is nothing that will separate me from him. It's, it's there that I'm finally able to let go at least a little bit. As you pray, you don't have to shrink back from God and say that everything's fine. I'm not scared. I'm terrified. I'm terrified all the time. I'm terrified when Jen is five minutes late. That's it. She's in a ditch on the side of the road. When, when your if onlys come up, whatever they are, no one loves you like he does. Ask him for help to set your affections that will never disappoint you.